0: Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic podcast, of all of the ways a successful dynasty or great franchise of success can end, sometimes it just comes down to a single person. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr., NFL historians and lovers of sports history, especially football, professional football, NFL football. Welcome in. This show is for you guys and gals and it's cool if you already know this stuff. Congratulations. I'll get a cookie for you later. Send me your address. I'll mail it to you. But there's always someone else who does not know this stuff. This show is for those who don't know as much about NFL history. So we are here to do three things. Enlighten, teach, and learn. This is the Behind the Mic Podcast. I am your host, Michael Neal Jr. This show is presented by Belly Up Sports and the Belly Up Sports Podcast Network. Bellyupsports.com. Again, go on it. Click on it. Read the articles. Listen to all of the shows, especially this one. Uh, this one first. Uh, they have everything that you want. and You can find us on our home base of Spreaker. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Also, Apple Podcasts which is very, very popular with everybody. Spotify, the second most popular spot to find your podcast. And also Google Podcast, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Okay, so the Washington football team, the Washington Commanders is what they call them now. Uh, It's a team, they were known as being at their best really during the 1980s and the early 90s. I grew up a... 49ers fan okay but i absolutely loved watching washington art monk was actually my favorite football player at first it was the first football card i ever had this is before jerry rice jerry rice is my all-time favorite football player period point blank um look i, I knew how to draw and so when we played backyard football as a kid they would call me artistic monk so I mean, it was that was great <laughs> Uh, but as long as they knew how good he was, all right, I didn't care. My mother actually had rented a house at one point uh, in, in the late what nineteen ninety two, going into ninety three, and I do re- wa- uh, I remember watching uh, on that Sunday Super Bowl twenty six by myself in the bonus room as Washington beat. Buffalo, the Buffalo Bills that day in January of 1993. To this day, I still don't know, this is a side note, still don't know what kind of turf cleats that Art Monk had on, but I still want a pair. They were some great Nike turf cleats. They look like low-cut Bo Jacksons, but they were Redskins. I'm sorry. They were Washington football team's colors, okay? Please excuse the expression. I don't mean any harm, but I'm trying to honor uh, that which has changed, right? So but anyway, I still want a pair. But when you look on the head coach of that team, he was a couple of years away from really two years away from um, really you know, a year away from retiring, actually the first time. Joe Gibbs, Hall of Famer, okay? The year I graduated was the year that he went into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1996. The fact that he won three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks, uh, I mean that was amazing. And it takes a special person to be able to do that. No one else has done that in the history of pro football, to my knowledge. I haven't seen it. And I know my stuff pretty much. I'm not afraid to say that. But to win three Super Bowls, three championships with three different quarterbacks in the Super Bowl era, that right there is pretty amazing. Um, And this was right before the era of free agency that really started in 1993. The football offseason as we know it now began in 1993. And um, because of what we're going to talk about today, I'll give you some of those details. He ended up with three different guys. And, man, (laughs) it was a great run that he had for those 12 seasons that he was the head coach. But in those 12 years, I actually have to break these two teams. Well, to me, I break them up in half because – the players that kind of overlap. He had some guys that had been with him before he was the coach, and some of them were with him all the way there to the end. Uh, some of them even after he left, a year or two after he left. But I had to break them up in two halves. There was an early to mid 80s version, and then you had the late 80s to early 90s version. But the Washington football team had a really good early history of franchise. That had been around since 1932 starting as the boston braves turned the please excuse the term this is a historical podcast the boston redskins turned washington redskins all right we'll stop right there between 1936 and 1930 uh, excuse me 1936 and 1945 washington appeared in six championships they won it all twice of course they were recipients of a 1945 championship l compliments of the then cleveland rams a year before they bolted for not, uh, los angeles between 46 and 62 they had only five winning seasons two of those being at 500 if you listen to the show long enough it's been duly noted that the owner of washington was a known racist george preston marshall it's not a secret and uh, he refused to have blacks on his teams of course he was clearly missing out on a lot of talent the kennedy administration if we Think we've said this a couple of times in the last couple of shows if this just come across the desk but I mean they put his arm behind his back forcing his hand really because of the 30-year lease he had signed to play at DC Stadium this is before RFK and that stadium was built in 1961 Marshall had to integrate his squad or they could not play there then there was the great trade of 1962 of course Paul Brown and Marshall made a behind-the-scenes agreement to swap picks. Washington would receive first round pick Leroy Jackson and Bobby Mitchell from the Browns in exchange for the rights to, to Syracuse Heisman Trophy winner Ernie Davis, who never played a down for the Browns because he would later die of cancer, leukemia to be exact. Washington would suffer through more losing seasons and also four head coaches, including Vince Lombardi under which Washington was seven, five and two in 1969. Of course, Lombardi passed after that season in September of 1970 from cancer. The 70s Washington football team would be much better from 1970 to 1979, 10 seasons. Only 1970 would Washington have a losing season. The franchise hired George Allen in 1971 who got Washington to the playoffs for five years. Known as the Over the Hill Gang, the squad was led by players such as receivers Charlie Taylor, Roy Jefferson Taylor, who's a pro football Hall of Famer, uh, running back Larry Brown, who became the first in franchise history to rush 4,000 yards. And of course, quarterback Billy Kilmer and defenders such as Verlin Briggs, Chris Hamburger, who was an all pro linebacker, Ron Talbert and Jack Pardee and Pat Fisher. Washington fans, you should know those players if you lo- love their history. Okay, so the 72 team advanced to the Super Bowl only to lose 14 to 7 to the undefeated Miami Dolphins and Don Shula. Allen was fired after the 77 season and replaced by a player who played that final game, his final game in that Super Bowl, was Super Bowl 7. That was Jack Pardee. The crazy part is that Allen ended up back with the Rams where he came from at first, but that didn't last very long. If you listened, to our Rams show from last week, he was fired two games into the preseason. I've never heard of a head coach being fired in the preseason, not in the preseason, no. Uh, anyway, as far as under Jack Pardee, the results, they were eight and eight, 10 and six, and six and 10. Owner Jack Kent Cook, who had 25% interest in Washington, this going all the way back to 1961, became majority owner in 74 after Marshall's death. Now, fast forward to 1981. Cook would hire Joe Gibbs, who had been the offensive coordinator for the San Diego Chargers, and under coach Don Coryell, Eric Coryell, with Gibbs as the OC, the offensive coordinator, the Chargers became the first team in NFL history to average 400 yards of offense, as well as have three 1,000 yard receivers in the same year. So today's offense, what we watch now, the Chargers were doing that back then under Correale and the offensive coordinator, Joe Gibbs. Of course, Joe Gibbs, being the OC, was going to get a head coaching job for the things that they were pulling off. Dan Fouts, Charlie Joyner, John Jefferson, Kellen Winzo, Chuck Muncy, those guys, those guys. His plan, though, was to bring that exact same offense to Washington. Gibbs had an air; he, he inherited a team with several components on both sides of the ball that would be key during their run in the 1980s. But there were some changes that he was going to have to make. At 39 years old, Billy Kilmer would relinquish his starting job to 29-year-old Joe Theismann. Theismann, who came out of Notre Dame, was actually drafted in 1971. Fourth round by the Miami Dolphins. I told you how cheap the Dolphins were. You go back to that show about the Dolphins. That was a factor in their dynasty their short dynasty being broke up in the 70s go listen to it Theismann opted to play for the Toronto Argonauts of the CFL instead they couldn't work out a contract that's what it was of course in 1972 Bob Greasy gets hurt he's replaced by Earl Morrow there's no argument but it's out there that Theisman could have been the quarterback during that 72 Dolphins season I don't know if they would have been undefeated or not but at some point he would have been the quarterback and maybe, just maybe, had started opposite Billy Kilmer in Super Bowl Seven. hmm, maybe. From 71 to 73, Joe Theismann, he played those three years in Toronto. Those same three years, the Miami Dolphins went to three straight Super Bowls, winning two of them. Hmm, Washington got his rights from the Dolphins in exchange for a first rounder, and there were, they were. Fullback John Riggins had played his first five years in the NFL with the New York Jets. He was the first running back selected in the 71 draft. He runs for 1,000 yards in 75, makes his first Pro Bowl, but ends up with the Washington football team as a free agent the next season. I'm guessing it had to see, uh, something to do with money, you know, because Riggins would sit out the entire 1980 season because the two sides could not agree on a contract. Just like Le'Veon Bell, nothing new under the sun. Riggins got talked back into coming to Washington by Joe Gibbs after the new coach paid him a visit at his home in Kansas. Gibbs, on the back end, he actually had planned on trading him because he thought that Riggins was kind of an egomaniac. And that was born from the conversation that they had. And, I mean, I could quote uh, John Riggins, He basically told him that he would, you know, just get me back there. I'll make you famous. (laughs) So I was like, oh, I don't know if I can deal with this dude. This is Joe Gibbs thinking. So he thought he was going to trade him once he got back there. Riggins, though, requested a no trade clause in his contract, though. When he got back, he's like, yeah, I'll come back. But I want a no trade clause. So he couldn't trade him. Classic best move Gibbs was unable to make. There would be another. That same year, Riggins sat out, tight end Rick Doc Walker came over from the Cincinnati Bengals and wide receiver Art Monk was drafted out of Syracuse. Receiver, and he was a rookie that year, Charlie Brown, he was drafted in 1982 and Alvin Garrett, who spent time with the New York Giants in 1980, came over to Washington midseason in 1981. Then there were the Hogs. This is the team how it's being built. The the original Hogs, Washington uh, tackle. You got George Stark, um, who had was drafted and cut by Washington, and in '72 he made the regular roster. Um, you know, as well as becoming the starter in 1973. So he didn't really get his legs until '73. Fred Dean played a year in Chicago in 77 before coming over in 78 Senator jeff bostic he arrived in 1980 as an undrafted free agent long career in 81 both russ grimm who's in the pro football hall of fame and joe jacoby who was just announced as a 2023 semi-finalist for the hall of fame jacoby a 6'7, 300 pound tackle out of louisville he was undrafted he made they they both of course were on the squad They even include tight ends, Rick Walker and Don Warren. Warren had been with the team since 79, okay? Defensively, Dexter Manley, 81. He was a fifth-round pick out of Oklahoma State. Dave Butts, the defensive tackle, he was fifth overall back in 73 by the St. Louis Cardinals. He comes over to the Washington football team in 75. Daryl Grant, an 81, ninth-round pick out of Rice. This guy was converted from an offensive guard to be a defensive tackle. And that was a move that really proved to be the right one. Played for a long time with Washington. And then there's Tony Peters, short-lived. He played for the Cleveland Browns for a couple years. Uh, And then in 79, he ends up with Washington. Then there's safety Mark Murphy, who had been there since 77. And then there's the frou-frou, haircut, you know, know, the big-haired Mark Mosley. 74, his first three seasons were with Philadelphia and Houston. Now, new head coach Joe Gibbs, and then you have the GM Bobby Bethard, who's also in the Hall of Fame, by the way. They put together a pretty good team between the free agent acquisitions as well as the draft and the you know guys that they, they traded for. Pretty good team. But things did not start well at all. After the first five weeks in 1981, Washington was 0 and five. At one point, both Gibbs and Beathard, they would be, they thought that they was going to be fired before they even won a game. The owner, Cook, he even thought about rehiring George Allen. That's crazy. His son, though, John, intervened and stepped in and said, "Dad, you probably don't want to do that." Wow. So Cook actually calls. Bobby Beathard, who was getting ready to leave on a flight, on his way out the door to go on a a scouting trip. And he says, look, you're not going nowhere. I'm the owner. You need to get your coach and you need to bring him out to my house. Now, of course, when Gibbs was hired, it was Cook that was taking all the credits. And that's my coach. Even Beathard is spoken of as being a guy who was a little reluctant to hire Gibbs in the first place. Everything worked out, okay? But both he and Gibbs had to drive 45 minutes to Jack Cook's house for a meeting in Virginia. They thought they were going to be fired. Instead, the man actually talked to them and encouraged them to be better, to do better. But here's the thing. On the field, the problem was that Gibbs was trying to force that San Diego Chargers offense on a team that didn't have the same talent. They had talent but it was more in other areas, okay? The talent that Washington had was geared more towards running the football. That they did. They could throw the football. Joe Theismann, he turned out to be a really good quarterback, but this was a more run-first team, a run-first offensive line, which they would soon figure out in 1982 and beyond. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike, and we're team Team ready Ready. black hills energy knows your home is where your heart is so they want you to be ready it's all about keeping you safe prepared and making your home as energy efficient as possible everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather be ready for anything go to blackhillsenergy.com team ready here's to the great american settlers If you don't know anything else about Joe Gibbs, this guy was a man of adjustments, which every head coach should be, right? And his adjustment during that first season, you know, in, in 1981, they started off 4-5, they finished the season 8-8 eight eight on the year. That means after they lost that last game and they had that drive out to Jack Cook's house, that produced an 8-3 record. So something had to be, you know, right for them to have, they had to know what they were doing to some point and they made changes. And that coaching staff worked very hard. 1982, the NFL went on strike that next year after the first two weeks of the season, 57 days later play resumes, Washington finishes that season 8-1. Joe Theismann and rookie Charlie Brown and return man Mike Nelms, who was a backup defensive back, strong safety Tony Peters, they all make the Pro, the pro Bowl. And the kicker, Mark Mosley, who actually won plenty of games for them, he won up them by winning the MVP. Only kicker in NFL history to do that. Win the NFL MVP. If somebody did that today, I'm like, wow. I, I, to me, it's almost impossible for that to happen now. Washington would literally run all the way to the Super Bowl and their first Lombardi trophy. This time, it was a Super Bowl Seven rematch against the Miami Dolphins. Of course, there's the story of Theismann. Would have, could have, should have with the Miami Dolphins, right? Any way you want to slice it. He was drafted by Shula. Now he's facing Shula. And, you know... Only this time, it wasn't a bunch of Hall of Famers to be. The Miami Dolphins, they were good, but they weren't the 70s Dolphins. 70s Dolphins, those are the best teams that Shula and the Miami, that they would ever have, okay? Um, No Bob Greasy, no Larry Zonka, Mercury Morris, Manny Fernandez, Jake Scott, or Paul Warfield, Dick Anderson, Nick Bonacani. This, they had the killer bees though. You had the brothers like Glenn and Lyle Blackwood, Charles Bowers. Uh, and Bowser and B- uh, Bud Brzezinski, Kim Camper and Doug Bellers, along with the do-everything defensive end, linebacker, whatever you want to call him, A.J. Dewey. Washington would win in the Rose Bowl 27 to 17 in Super Bowl 17. Not only did Theismann throw for two touchdowns, he actually broke up a potential game-breaking interception near his own goal line if you ever watched that game. A uh, ball gets tipped at the line, and Bo campers got a walk-in pick six, the ball's floating up in the air, and Thysman goes defensive back on him, and that pretty much saved the game. Riggins, who had averaged only three yards per carry during the season, set an NFL record for postseason yardage. Not only did he average, what, four and a half yards per carry, he finished with 625 total yards of offense. 601, I believe, on the ground in four games. He won Super Bowl MVP, he ran for 166 yards. That was a Super Bowl record at the time. And then he had that dramatic 42 yard touchdown run on fourth and one that put Washington up for good. The next year in 1983 though, they were, you know, really high stepping. And they were ones that were gonna be favored to win it all. And they ended up being favored to win in the Super Bowl. Washington again finished as the NFC's best at 14 and two. Only two losses they had combined two points. Two one-point losses. I think it was a shootout with the Cowboys. And then like a 48-47 to game they played against Green Bay a couple of weeks later. The first game of the season, they lost to the Cowboys by one point. Uh, I mean, that, that's it. Two points. Riggins, Theismann, Nelms, Murphy, Butts, they were all pros. All of them. Charlie Brown made his second straight Pro Bowl. And Jeff Bostic, the center, made his first. They will meet this time in the Super Bowl the Los Angeles Raiders in Tampa. It would be a week 5 rematch, in which Washington, they want to shoot out that game too. The Raiders actually led that game, I didn't know this, by 15 points before Washington outscored them 17 to nothing in the fourth quarter to win that game. The Super Bowl, however, LA made sure that that wouldn't happen again. Not only did Marcus Allen break John Riggins rushing yards record, 191 yards and that 74 yard, that beautiful 74 yard uh touchdown run that he had, which I mean he had to reverse his field. 17 Bob Trail, they ran it all the time. And I mean Washington had it snuffed out. He reverses his field 74 yards later. I mean, it was it was a beatdown. Epic proportions. And Jim Plunkett, who was the quarterback who just won, he and Tom Flores they had just won their second Super Bowl. And not only that, Joe Thiesman, who had been—if you don't already know this story—he went to Notre Dame, and the PR guy there, his his name was Roger Valdassari, he convinced Joe Theisman to start, you know, using his name, his last name is Thiesman. It's actually Thiesman, but they changed it to rhyme with Heisman. Didn't work out, and he lost that that year, the Heisman Trophy to Jim Plunkett. He finished second. That's not bad, but Jim Plunkett. Got another W on him. And the Raiders, they put that beat down on Washington, 38-9 in the Super Bowl. Washington was favored by three. Now, the 84 team, they finished 11-5. Uh, Art Monk, I mean, I mean, it wasn't a whole lot of Pro Bowls that year. I mean, Art Monk, he set a, uh NFL record with 106 catches that year, 1,372 yards. And the second year, cornerback Daryl Green, you know, they were good. Two future Hall of Famers. They were upset in the playoffs by the Chicago Bears, 23-19. They went into that game as nine-point favorites. But people didn't know how good the Bears were actually going to be. 85, Washington was 10-6. They missed the playoffs. 86, though, that brought about some change. You know, some of the old guard had moved out. You had some new guys, a little bit of a new offensive backfield. Quarterback Jay Schrader took over as quarterback and his backup was back in the NFL after a couple of years of hiatus, Doug Williams, at the age of 31. Running back George Wash, uh, Rogers, who took over after, I think he came over from the Falcons. He took over for Riggins. He was a 1,200-yard and 18-touchdown running back that year. Schrader, along with Art Monk, and then you had Gary Clark, who was another new, one of those new receivers. Russ Grimm and Daryl Green, they all made the Pro Bowl. Dexter Manley. Uh, he was an all-pro. Charles Mann was one of the new guys on that defense. He had 10 sacks that year. Washington was 12-4. and four. They finished behind the New York Giants in the division. Um, they ran through the Rams and those defending champion Chicago Bears before they lost to New York in the NFC Championship game. It would be the only time Joe Gibbs would lose in the conference championship. And that's great. I mean, the Giants won it all that year. So they had a really good squad. But in 87 brought another player strike, uh, strike, excuse me, in which the league only missed out on one game. Of course, the owners, if you know the story, they used replacement players. And Washington was the only team that had zero regular NFL players that crossed the picket lines. Everybody else had guys that came back over. They finished the season 11 and 4. And I believe those replacement players for Washington went undefeated. And so that helped them. Uh, take the division as a matter of fact and some of those players were retained uh behind Doug Williams I mean he ended up coming off the bench a lot that year in um in place of Jay Schrader uh and he threw touchdowns he brought Washington back and I think they had a game or two where they lost but uh by the playoff time uh Doug Williams was named the starter going forward into the pro season. Now, early in the year, Doug Williams, he wanted to be traded away and he was going to send Doug Williams, Joe Gibbs was, to the Raiders. Another day comes up where he brings Doug into his office and says, I've changed my mind. There's a little short argument where Doug Williams is like, you can't change your mind. Gibbs lets him know, even though they're cool, because he actually went on a recruiting trip. To sit in and watch and talk to for two days Doug Williams while he was at Grambling and he did that for uh, John McKay and they ended up drafting him because he was working for Tampa Bay at the time so they go way back but Doug was upset because he wanted to be traded because he wanted to start and he says look Doug I don't work for the Raiders I work for Washington And this is what it is. I have a hunch. We need to keep you. And that was one of the best things that he never did—a trade that he never made. Two Super Bowl MVPs. Gibbs almost traded away. First one was, first one was Griggin's, and then you had Doug Williams. Well, by the time the playoffs, you know, Doug Williams—he's the starter—and they move on to Super Bowl 22. He not only wins MVP, and keep this in mind. In the Super Bowl, they were down to the Denver Broncos, 10 to nothing after the first quarter. Williams and the Washington offense, they set a Super Bowl record with 35 points in the second quarter. And Doug had a game of games, a Super Bowl record, 340 yards. He was 18 of 29, threw four touchdown passes. Then you had the substitute running back, Timmy Smith, who came from out of nowhere, rushing for, he broke Marcus Allen's record and ran for 204 yards. Ricky Sanders, the third receiver in, you know, of, what they were called the posse. Art Monk, Gary Clark, and, and Ricky Sanders. Love playing with them on Techno ball as well. <laughs> but he set a Super Bowl record with 191 yards receiving. Of course, Jerry Rice broke it the next year. <laughs> uh, Doug Williams, the first African American to start a Super Bowl, first African American to win a Super Bowl, and the first African American, this is all a quarterback, to win MVP in the big game. Doug Williams. 1988 eh, Super Bowl winning hangover it was the only losing season to that point that Gibbs would have in his career they finished 7-9. the defense was god-awful uh, only Charles Mann made the Pro Bowl that year and he had five and a half sacks uh, maybe he was a substitute I don't know but by 1989 Mark Rippon had taken over for Doug Williams as the starter the team finished six and six I mean 10-6 excuse me and again no playoffs 1990 Washington had the same record. They made the playoffs, then they upset the 11-5 Eagles that they finished behind, but they lost in the divisional round to San Francisco. San Francisco was trying to win that third Super Bowl in a row. I think you guys know how that ended up. 1991, well, that was a pivotal, pivotal year. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team Team ready. Ready. So 1991 comes around and that was a memorable year. I still remember that being one of those uh, early years of my football baptism where I was really, really paying a lot of attention week after week after week. And I still remember the playoff game uh, that the Washington football team won when they beat Uh, the Atlanta Falcons. They came in with the two legit to quit and MC Hammer's on the sidelines and it's muddy and it's raining and (laughs) Washington put a beat down (laughs) on uh, Atlanta. Then they go and they beat up on Detroit 41-10 before going to the Super Bowl uh, in Minneapolis. And, you know, that was a magical year for Washington. They finished 14-2. They started the year off 11-0. Of course, you know the Dolphins. Everybody that threatens... They're 17, seventeen and zero record. They pop the bottles when someone loses, and I mean, they lost two games. Whoop de do! They won the Super Bowl, and this time is Mark Rippin. Mark Rippin has a heck of a day throwing the football, and I still want those cleats, those turf cleats that <laughs> that uh, Art Monk had on uh, that year. It, it was it was really really great year for Mark Rippon and those Washington, uh, I want to say commanders, but the Washington football team, he threw for 292, uh, two touchdowns. They had a little balanced running game between Ricky Erson and Ernest Biner, uh, Ricky Sanders, and, and, well, he only caught one pass, but both Gary Clark and Art Monk, they had over 100 yards that day. And I still am like, golly, I wish he had caught that touchdown. That was I think that was the first drive. And they called it a touchdown, but his toe was out of bounds. But I mean, it was a great year for the uh for Washington. Mark Rippon, Ernest Biner, they were uh, and Gary Clark, they were all pro bowlers that year. And um, I mean, Art Monk still had a thousand yards. Uh, that was you know, this is after Wilbur Marshall came over, linebacker from Chicago. Uh, you had Darrell Green, that was an all pro, and Charles Mann. Great team. They, They had a really, really great team. But the next year, you know, things fell off. They were nine and seven the year after that. And they started losing some of those guys, and some of those players were really getting aged. And you have to deal with the aftermath the aftermath of all of these years of the success that Washington had enjoyed in going into the 12th season, the 12th and final season for Joe Gibbs, at least to that point. So, We're going all the way back, 1984. Doc Walker and George Stark, they retired, uh, as did uh, Mike Nelms, who was the Pro Bowl kick returner, and he actually got cut after the '84 season. Then there's Charlie Brown, who was the Pro Bowler his first two years in the league. He was traded to Atlanta for three-time Pro Bowl guard, R.C., I think his name is not Thielman, but it was pronounced Thieman. I think he started a little bit, but he never really, you know, I guess him being that good, I think he became more of a move around guy and a backup. Didn't really do a whole lot of research on that guy. But also during the 85 draft, if you know the the scat back, Joe Washington that played alongside with uh, John Riggins, he was also traded to the Falcons. And then 1985, week 11, Monday Night Football, November 18th, 1985, Washington is hosting the New York Giants. Joe Gibbs, he calls a flea flicker that I believe he wished he could take it back. Joe Theismann's career ended that day. Theismann suffered that compound fracture of his right leg when LT snapped it like a twig. I mean, he got that sack on that play. It was just like like Alex Smith, those eerie similarities. And everything that, I mean, it was great to see Alex Smith bounce back and be able to play a little bit after sitting out as long as he did. Uh, John Riggins, he retired after that season. And also done was Pro Bowl 82 Pro Bowl safety Tony Peters. He had actually missed the whole 83 season the next year. He was arrested by federal agents being a part of a drug plot. He was selling cocaine. Uh, 1986, Mark Mosley, he had got... He got sent over to the Cleveland Browns that season, and those same Browns would lose to the Denver Broncos in the AFC Championship game, which was Mosley's final game, and I believe he retired after that. Doug Williams, he was waived after the 89 season, as he suffered a lot of injuries, and he was replaced in the starting uh, lineup by Mark Rippon. Rippon held out for a better contract after winning the MVP in that Super Bowl. He got it, I believe it was about $9 million. But Washington took a nosedive with him as the starting quarterback. He would play with the Browns twice for the Rams and the Colts. And I think he also played for some semi pro uh, team for like a game in 2006. But uh, he also was on the practice squads for the Falcons and Eagles. And he was cut by Seattle in 2002 during the preseason. And then that was it. That same year, uh, going back to 1989 dexter manley he failed a drug test and he was basically done in washington he failed one too many between the cardinals in eight in 1990 and the buccaneers in 1991 and he was done charles Mann, he was a free agent in 93 after 93 he signed with san francisco in 94 he won a final ring with the 49ers in super bowl 29. the posse art monk gary clark ricky sanders monk he's in the hall of fame that's all you need to know Clark left as a free agent in 92, as did Sanders um, in 93. Both retired by 1995. The Hogs, you had Russ Grimm. He retired after Super Bowl 26. That was his last game. Don Warren, he left the same time as Joe Gibbs. Joe Jacoby and center Jeff Bostic, they both retired in 1993. Now, as I said at the beginning of the show, that I had to break this team up, you know, kind of these teams up in half. There was the 81 to 85 team. There was the 86 to 91 teams, along with a couple of the Hogs. There was one constant, Joe Gibbs. Just look at the way, it com- you know, what they accomplished and how many moving parts changed their key positions. And you also can't forget, again, GM Bobby Beathard, who was there for 11 of those seasons for between 78 and 88. I mean, he's not in the Hall of Fame for no reason at all, right? How did it all come to an end? I mean, look at, you know, with those moving parts and the quarterbacks and the running backs and the receivers and the defenders and the special teams, everything. This time, you know, this time, I would say that the big difference, it wasn't, you know, injuries. It wasn't so much retirements. It wasn't any of that stuff. It was Joe Gibbs. It it was Joe Gibbs leaving. And that was the big difference. The head coach. Hall of Fame head coach joe gibbs he retired after the 1992 season and apparently nobody saw it coming he didn't really tell anybody until he was ready to do actually do it and he was described as being worn out uh, i think it was dick Vermeil, who he had kind of sat with a little bit and he was the one that said hey look i've been there you know Vermeil was coaching the eagles and then he left and he came back and coached the rams and i believe the uh uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, and then he retired. But you know, he said he'd seen it all before. But the thing was, it was family. There's a story that's described by author Bob Glover in um, one of the books that I read. And he basically says that one night, uh, Gibbs, he, he goes to kiss his son goodnight, and he realizes that he's kissing a kid that has grown to be like 6'2", or whatever he is, two hundred and fifty pounds, that's about to go off to college to play for Bill Walsh at Stanford, played linebacker there. And he said the guy just started crying because he had missed it all. He had missed his boys' childhood. He had his—he he's got his his wife Pat, and then his his boys JD and I think and I forget the other one, uh, but uh, his name. But he missed both of his boys why because he was a workaholic really great guy he wasn't a cussing kind he's he's a man of faith and the thing is picture john gruden and i'm not going to make any comparison here but joe gibbs stayed lived at that facility he just said it straight up look we had to work hard on a lot of things and he would sleep there three four nights a week because he said there's no sense in me going home if i'm going to turn around and come right back to the facility early in the morning on america's game i believe it was the 1982 washington football team i think it was doc walker that described he said when he came in the next morning he says that that, that there was due on gibbs's car because he never left he did that for years and he missed out on his family so basically the man was ready to retire he wanted to have that time with his family with his wife and with his boys and i mean there's no other <laughs> there's no other reason that i think it, he, he he shouldn't have to say anything else look i miss my family i love football but i miss my family but he was described like i said as worn out anyway for those 12 years and in those 12 years Washington made the playoffs eight times. Even in this last year, they rebounded from a 6-5 start. They finished 9-7, making them a wild card. They upset the Vikings in Minnesota before losing to San Francisco 20-13 in that divisional round. But under Gibbs, Washington only had that one losing season in 1988, where they were 7-9. Of course, he had the NASCAR thing going Gibbs Racing, he was already doing that and the great thing is he was able to work with his boys and spend that time with his sons because they were both into it as well. So, I'm not sure if they still do it or not. But, fast forward to 2004, Daniel Snyder, Jack Kent Cook, he's passed away in 1997. In 1999, they had a new owner, it was Daniel Snyder. 2004, he lures Gibbs back into coaching for four more seasons and amazingly, enough he got Washington to the playoffs two out of those four years the first year I think they were six and ten they then went ten and six and they were in the playoffs and I think the next year they had a losing season and then the last year you know they finished off in the playoffs again and you know the 2017 they finished with that wild card berth in 97 and, and that was this the team that had Jason Campbell and Todd Collins Clinton Portis uh, Antoine Randall-L, Sean Taylor, Sean Springs, London Fletcher, Le'Ron Landry at safety, tight end Chris Cooley. Yeah, that team. Sadly, that was the same year of Sean Taylor's death during the season. But following Washington's uh, loss to Seattle in the wild card round, Gibbs announced his final retirement. Washington hadn't won a Super Bowl before he got there, and they haven't won one since he retired. Even after he was talked into coming back and coach four more seasons and got those teams to the playoffs. That was it. And that's it. References, thanks to thesportsnotebook.com. This is by, uh, this was an article, a historical article on the 1988 Washington football team by Dan Flaherty. Also, the Washington Post, Redskins trade Brown for Thielman by Christine Brennan. This is dated August 27th. 1985 Redskins Peters Charged in Drug Plot by John Burgess this is dated August 4th 1983 also got a couple books of course the NFL at 100 y'all know who it is and this was co-written by Randy O. Williams and Jerry Rice also the Sporting News Complete Super Bowl Book 1993 edition these editors are tom diner joe Hoppel, and dave sloan also a new book that i'm really getting into this is really a good book it's by bob glower it's called guts and genius and it's the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the nfl in the 1980s well in the 80s this has been the behind the mic podcast presented by O sports i am your host michael neal jr Belly Sports Podcast Network. That's where we are, bellyofsports.com. Again, go to it, click on it, read the stories, listen to the shows. Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube is where you can find our shows. Tell all your fathers, mothers, cousins, sisters, mo- brothers, nephews, aunties, former roommates, and friends about this show, or I'll find your house. I'm out.